starting in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in the Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You're a good, good father. idea was it to have me talk <laughs> after that? <clears throat> uh, friends, the Lord be with you. I want to begin today with a, 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 a kind of a version of a game show. Of course, right? So here's what I'm going to do. You're going to hear in a minute, you're going to hear an animal sound. And I want you to shout out to me what animal it is, Okay. It's going to be simple. We've got three rounds. I actually have prizes for the person who guesses correctly. All right? You ready for this? First animal sound, please. Anybody? Who said flamingo? Great. Yes? Oh, come on, come on. I played sports in college. Great. Second, second animal noise, please. This side of the room is full of honest people. Very good. I didn't realize that was going to happen. You can see the correct answer on this side of the room. So you know that, you know that for future game shows to sit on what side of the, How about someone over here? Anybody guess? Zebra. Who said zebra? Of course, it's the same people. So you did? Really? Back here? I'm going to hit that projector. Ah, 
Perfect. All right. I'm so sorry that uh, I'm going to, I feel like I want to block this. I want to sit down right here and try to block this screen. Third and final noise, please. You can still see, can't you? Peacock is correct. Who guessed peacocks? Well done, people. I see those. I see those hands. Sorry, no offense. I see you. Sorry. Thank you. Um, if if those aren't the right sizes, you can see Amy Jo Kreitzer after the service and get correct size. Um, thanks for that, everybody. That has nothing to do with today's. Um, it actually does. What have we learned? Um, we've learned that all the animals in the animal kingdom have a distinct call that set them apart, right? A distinguishing sort of a call. I want to thank um, Eric Carl and Bill Martin Jr. for their inspiration on this. Yes, new dad alert. I am mining children's books for my sermon illustrations. That is happening. Did I hear someone say you'd like to see an updated picture of my daughter Maggie? Okay, we can do that gratuitously here. 11 months old right now and truly the most delightful creature to have ever been created. Um, so uh, what does that have to do with today? Let me ask a different question. Oh, hold on, hold on one second, one second. Hold on one second, hold on one second. That's the answer to my question that I haven't asked yet. <laughs> well rehearsed. Friends, what does a Christian sound like? We know what a zebra sounds like, a peacock, a flamingo. What does a Christian sound like? What I want to submit to you is that for two millennia, a Christian has sounded like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was crucified by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He descended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. For most of the life of the church, the Apostles' Creed has been the identifiable call of the Christian. From virtually the beginning of the Christian movement, it has served as a marker, as a distinguishing feature of God's followers. And so today we begin a three-month series for the entirety of the summer where we're going to focus on these words, this ancient Apostles' Creed. And over the summer we're going to move phrase by phrase as through these ancient words, diving into the background of the creed, we're going to help to situate in the Bible where these things come from, and we're going to ask the question, what in the world does this have to do with us today? And I have one other personal hope for this series. My personal hope is that some of us will memorize, maybe for the first time, the Apostles' Creed. And that will internalize these words. And so what we're going to do, we're going to practice a little bit every week. We're going to talk about how far have we been so far. And then we're going to add the next bits 
as we go. And so um, we're going to uh, start today and each week build a little bit more. So I want to invite you to join me and we're going to speak together this opening phrase that we're going to focus on today. So all together, is it up there? That one, that's the one right there. All together, I believe in God the Father. Next week, I'll explain why I stopped right here. But we're going to do this for right now. This is the focus of today. And um, I'm excited to give a little bit of a background. We're going to sprinkle more background throughout this whole series. But I feel like if we're going to start with the Apostles' Creed, we probably ought to have a couple of what is it. So I want to highlight four things for you before we jump into this. Okay? So here's the first thing. One, the Apostles' Creed is really old. Okay? Most scholars agree that we can find this, the, uh, the origins of the Apostles' Creed way back in the middle of the second century. The form that we have the Apostles' Creed in right now, that came to us largely in the middle of the fourth century, and then by the seventh century, so in the 600s, we're roughly having all revisions done. So it's old. There are other creeds that also exist that were coming up around uh, some of those times as well, Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, but really the Apostles' Creed is for us the simplest and the most historic of all of the creeds. So that's one. It's really old. Second, it expresses shared convictions. The Apostles' Creed has functioned from the very beginning of history as part of the worshiping life of God's people. It was a part of the liturgical life. People said it. It had a liturgical and corporate function from the very beginning. And I think that the Apostles' Creed is a really helpful antidote to like modern individualism that sneaks its way into our spiritual lives. These words, they offer us an opportunity to unite our hearts and our voices around what we hold in common. Functionally, the Apostles' Creed is personal, but it's never private. And that's why we titled this series, We Believe. And so, these are shared convictions of ours, not just of Marshall Bible Church, and not just of Marshall Bible Church in Granville and in Grand Rapids, but churches all around the globe. These are our shared convictions. Third, the Apostles' Creed articulates specific truths. Um, this is not an exhaustive theological statement. Uh, it says something but it doesn't say everything. And that's helpful for us to remember. It succinctly tells the story that animates and empowers our attempts to follow God. Um, here may be a helpful way of, that I find of holding the Apostles' Creed. Uh, Christianity can be no less than the words of the Apostles' Creed. It doesn't answer everything, but it can be no less than these words. The creed is intentionally specific. You'll see that as we go along. And then fourth and finally, the Apostles' Creed, it incorporates symbolic language. The Apostles' Creed, it, it borrows biblical language and, uh, and pictures. And so what that means is that the Apostles' Creed is steeped in what is called analogical language. In other words, it uses analogy. It paints word pictures. Okay, this is helpful for us. We have to remember that it's symbolic language. And so what that means is it, is it is attempting to do what is truly impossible, 
to explain the unexplainable. The Apostles' Creed is trying, it's not trying to define God and to define Jesus and to define the Holy Spirit and to define the life of faith. Instead, it's pointing. It's pointing at what it can never fully explain and to what we can never fully comprehend. One scholar I appreciate, he said that the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed contains words that speak truly, but not fully. It's impossible to speak fully. And so um, these are helpful handles for us because we need to have appropriate expectations as we come to study and look at the Apostles' Creed. It cannot and it doesn't attempt to be and do everything. So that's helpful for us. Um, uh, and so, even in its brevity and in its limitations, there's a lot for us. So, we're going to jump into that, all right? I've got a lot to cover at just this first phrase. So, let's do the first two words, I believe. We have to stop here because these first words can be a major sticking point for some people. Belief has fallen on hard times. Doubt has been for quite a while trending. For some people, owning up that you believe is embarrassing. For some, actions are the only thing that matter. Belief comes in a distant second at best compared to a life that speaks loudly. I've had multiple conversations over the years with people about the Apostles' Creed, and they would say something like this, I will never be able to speak those words out loud because I cannot commit to believing everything that it says. So for some, belief is an all-or-nothing proposition. And I want to say here that at this church, we want to take seriously um, this small little verse in the book of Jude, it's, just, it's got 28 or 9 verses, right at the end of the New Testament, right before the, uh, the book of Revelation. And in Jude, there is this encouragement, be merciful to those who doubt. We want to take that seriously. So we're not try, I'm not trying to poke holes in other, I'm not trying to uh, discourage or to belittle those who struggle to believe. But I want to say that in, as we come into a statement like this, it's probably helpful that we would name the potential complications around belief. But here is my general encouragement. Don't get hung up on that word. In Latin, the Apostles' Creed begins this way, credo in Deum, which we translate as, I believe in God. And that's appropriate and accurate. But it's also richer and it's more nuanced and it has more connotations than that uh, kind of rigid English translation. It's appropriate that we might also say these phrases, I have confidence in, or I put my trust in. And that's a little bit of a different thing because it relocates belief from just mental assent to just rationality. And it means that it probably needs to be lived out. I think this is helpful, instructive language for all of us to say, I have confidence in God the Father or I put my trust in God the Father is a little different, isn't it? 
that almost it demands some sort of lived out proof. And that may be really helpful for us. The Apostles' Creed, when we speak it, we're not just saying my mind says something. We're saying these words matter enough that I choose to live differently in the world because of them. That's the connotation around belief. And let's not lose sight of the subject of the Apostles' Creed. The subject is not your belief or my belief. The Apostles' Creed is not about whether we have enough faith or don't have enough faith. Um, that's not what the subject is of the creed. Uh, one of the heroes on our staff and a, a giant, uh, particularly in uh, Reformed theology, is a guy named Karl Barth. And Karl Barth said this, as, uh, which I think is really helpful for us. He said this, faith is trust in divine faithfulness. In other words, we don't place our confidence in our belief or in our faith. We put our trust in the faithfulness of God demonstrated from generation to generation. Bart goes on and he says, what interests me is not my faith, but he in whom I believe. And that's really what the Apostles' Creed is trying to do for us. The subject matter of the, of the Apostles' Creed is not you and I. The Apostles' Creed is trying to draw us deeper into God's story trying to draw us deeper into God's intentions for humankind through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. That's the story that's on display. And so we need to make sure we avoid the temptation to turn the Apostles' Creed to be about us. We have to be careful and avoid that temptation. Let's continue with that opening phrase. I believe in God the Father. And no surprise, we have now come across some more language that's potentially problematic. It's necessary that we would acknowledge that father language can be a problem for some people. Because some of us have had difficult earthly associations and difficult earthly representations of fatherhood, to call God Father could be challenging, if not impossible. And so I think before moving past this, before trying to defend this, it is necessary that we would mourn with those who mourn. And that we would say, if you have had earthly fathers that have been woefully disappointing and that have been damaging and that have made it impossible, impossible for you to understand God's father, that as a church, we are so sorry and that we mourn with you. That being said, let me give a few words about why we continue to use that language and why the, the language is still in the creed and why the language continues to play a role in the life of the church throughout history. 
First, as I just said a couple minutes ago, the creed incorporates symbolic language. So talking about God as Father is just a picture. That is not an exact representation of what God is like, and it's not an exhaustive representation either. The Bible is filled with pictures of God as a mother alongside of lots of other roles and titles. And so this is just a symbol. This is an attempt for the creed to give us a handle to try to understand the mystery of God. Second, God, God is the ultimate example of fatherhood and not our earthly representatives. So we continue using the language of God as Father, even though all human representations fall short. And we do that in some ways in hope that putting in front of us the example of God as Father would shape and inform every one of us who are stumbling along trying to be a father. That that would be held up as our ideal and that we wouldn't just remove the language because of its problematic associations. Frankly, every single title and role that's given to God that could be expressed in a human form falls short. Human shepherds fall short. Human kings, human gardeners, human judges, every one of them, they all fall short. These are just simply um, ideals that we look to the Father to give us pictures of. Third, Jesus uses this language of God as Father scattered all over the, the Gospels. We'll get to that in a minute. But the, the key part is that he invites us to use that language as well. That when he taught the disciples to pray, as Ashley talked about just a minute ago, he was encouraging them to use intimate language to incorporate the phrase, our Father, into their understanding and conversation with God. And so we want to follow the example of Jesus, even in this way. And we want to incorporate that and trust in his encouragement for us to use that language. Finally, there is something uniquely formational about this particular association with God, about God as Father. And that's what I want to focus on for these last couple of minutes. There is something about considering and talking about God as Father that is uniquely formational for us. What is so valuable about this being front and center in the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed? Here's what I want to suggest. This analogy, this picture of God as Father, it offers us a very unique glimpse into God's heart. Michael Byrd, when he, he wrote a book about the Apostles' Creed, um, he said this. I think this is really helpful. God's fatherhood is part of the particularity of God's self-disclosure. In other words, God is trying to communicate something very specific about himself through the imagery of fatherhood. And the Apostles' Creed, it intentionally begins with God as Father because it's in using that same analogy, trying to stress something significant about God. We begin here to remind ourselves, either again or for the first time, of the relationally fundamental heart of God. God's heart fundamentally is of relationship. From the very beginning of these ancient words in the Apostles' Creed, before we get to any other aspect of God's character, before we get to his might, before we get to creation, before we get to his resurrection power through Jesus, we get this picture 
this foundation that God desires relationship. It's massive. The Bible affirms this priority, this prioritization throughout, almost from the very beginning, we get fatherly language. Let's take a quick drive-by. Exodus chapter 4. God is speaking through Moses to Pharaoh and says this, Israel is my firstborn son. In Deuteronomy 32, it's a song of Moses. It asks this question, is not God your father, your creator, the one who made you and the one who formed you? A few verses later we read, it says that the people forgot about the God who gave them birth. In Psalm 68, God's called a father to the fatherless. Isaiah 64, a passage that many of us are probably familiar with, it's where the, uh, God is called the potter and we are called the clay. Right at the beginning of that it says, yet you, Lord, you are our father. And then God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah with this moving promise. He says, I will lead them. God's saying, I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Why? Because I am Israel's father. And so many more other examples. But this relational aspect of God is confirmed throughout the Old Testament. This is not just a New Testament thing. In the Old Testament, we see all this imagery of God's desire to be in relationship with his people. And then it's supremely expressed in the life and in the words of Jesus. Scattered all throughout the Gospels, the four Gospels, Jesus is constantly talking about his Father. Constantly talking about his father in heaven. He's constantly talking about his father's house and the work of his father and his father's name and being unified, being at one with his father. Jesus is a particular and uh, uh, individualized expression of the relationship that God wants to have with his people in Jesus. But I don't think the Apostles' Creed is trying to draw our attention to that. I don't think the Apostles' Creed is trying to just say, God wanted a relationship with Israel and wanted a relationship with Jesus. I think the Apostles' Creed is trying to say from the very beginning to all Christians in all places and at all times that God desires to be in relationship with you. And I know that might sound like something's just on repeat. But the Apostles' Creed thinks it's important enough to put it first. We always begin here that God as a Father wants to be in relationship with you. If, if we don't get this right, if we don't get this part right in our heads and in our hearts, it will not be too long before we're down unhelpful and frankly unchristian paths. What we say in the Apostles' Creed is significant. We do not say that we believe in a deistic, hands-off clock starter. That we do not put our trust in some indifferent, arms-folded, waiting-to-be-appeased God like we find in Roman poems, Greek myths, 
that we don't put our confidence in an impersonal, dispassionate, distant force. The Apostles' Creed wants to reinforce for us that we need to wrap our heads and our hearts around God's desire to be in relationship with us. This is massive for us. So this is what I want to do. I want to end by inviting you to reflect once again, or maybe for the first time ever, on this amazing truth that God desires relationship. We're going to spend a few minutes singing the refrain that Dunwin led us in a couple minutes ago, good, good father. Uh, but I want to tell you a little story about it first. Um, I remember a couple of years ago being in a very, very old church in England. And I was uh, in a service for young people. And it was probably uh, 14 years old to early, early 20s. Um, and it was unruly and rowdy and really unfocused. Um, and it was coming a bit off the rails all the time until the singing. And the singing kind of, it seemed to bring people together and it seemed to like crack something open. And uh, the woman who was leading the music, she started in, she started in on this song, Good, Good Father, and something happened. Uh, like something palpable changed in the room. And all attention kind of focused. And all distractions were eliminated. And you could feel something was going on. And I will say that uh, even the boys, no, not even the boys, especially the boys. Especially the boys who were dismissive and disruptive and cynical and obviously distant. You could see something was happening. And heads were tilted back and people were kind of singing at the top of their lungs. I saw a couple of guys starting to cry. They were putting arms around each other. I mean, it was really moving for four or five minutes. And then the next song and everybody kind of said, well, I don't know what that was about, right? And back it up. Uh, when the service was all done, I asked my friend, I, I just had to bring that up. I said, that experience, something was going on there. And he said, yeah, he goes, I'll affirm that. And he went on to point out to me, he said, yeah, every one of those boys that you were noticing, every one of them, the most broken homes you could imagine, every one of them, if there is a dad somewhere in their, in, in their life living in their home, which seems really unlikely, I can tell you this, there's no relationship, nothing. So for these boys, when that song came on, this wasn't a belief statement. This was a statement of desperation. This was a moment when they're singing, this has to be true. I have to, this has got to be true. They were eager for every single opportunity to remember that God desired to be in relationship. So we're going to sing that song. Just that chorus a little bit. And I'm going to read some verses over you. Some verses that will remind you that we're not just making this up. 
And some things that I hope that in these next couple of minutes, what will happen for us is that we will open ourselves up to this profound truth and that we'll move past mental assent, that we'll move past a kind of rationalization, a move past head knowledge, and that we'll invite the Holy Spirit to sear on our hearts. Sear on our hearts. Maybe for the first time, but maybe to renew this reality that God desires to be with you. That God's desire is to be in relationship with you. And so, hear these words and let's sing these words. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Every family deriving its name from the Father. Friends, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. And in love, God predestined us for adoption. <laughs> adoption to sonship. Adoption to daughtership. According to his pleasure and to his will. He is a good, good father. slaves but God's children and since you are his children he has made you also heirs and this is what the Lord Almighty says I will be a father to you 
and you will be my sons and daughters. So see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Before we sing once more, move to the table. I, I really love this insight from a, a theologian, Luke Timothy Johnson. He writes this, that when, when Christians recite the Apostles' Creed, uh, he says this, they tell themselves and each other a story that they already know, but that bears such constant repetition, for it is a story unlike any other. And it's a story that we must speak to each other because so much of what we experience in the world seems to deny the reality or the power of that story. A story unlike any other. So any of you who are desperate to know this relational God, or for anyone who might admit that the story has gotten old and has lost its power. For those who are weary of trying to appease a distant and dispassionate and impersonal force, for those who struggle to believe, here is a story unlike any other. A story of a God who desires that we would be his children. So come and see what great love the Father has lavished on us.